Imagining things. We must be. I mean, how would anything get into the ship anyway? The doors were open. Yes, but but where would it hide? In one of us. Welcome to Time Streams. I'm Nathan. And I'm Juliet. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the two-part serial, The Edge of Destruction, which is sometimes referred to as Inside the Spaceship or Beyond the Sun. But before we talk about this story, Juliet, how are you doing this week? Doing okay. My kitty cat had a dislocated hip this week, so we had two trips to the vet. One was just for a checkup because he wasn't feeling well and peed in my bed that weekend, Hmm. which is so not like him. And then the thin... The two days after the vet told me, just keep him relaxed. It's all stress related. Try to help him chill out. He dislocated his hip overnight. Mm. Yes. That's pretty rough. It's funny that, I mean, like, the whole. <laughs> I'm glad that your cat doesn't pee on your bed all the time because my cat's not allowed in the bedroom anymore because that's just what she does. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, he hasn't peed on the bed since he was a kitten, and it was his second night here, and he had didn't know how to get back off the bed because of his condition. Mm. Yeah, if she's, like, if, if she wouldn't do it, like, if we're sleeping in the bed, she wouldn't do it. But if we're, like, out of the room and the door is open, she'll, like, just go on and just pee on the bed. We don't so know why. And it's all beds, too. Like, she's not allowed in any of the bedrooms. Like, she just thinks for some reason that beds are litter boxes. I have no idea why. Wow. Hmm? Crazy. Yep. But yeah, I saw I saw some of your posts about it. I saw your cat has an unusual way of sitting. Yeah, he sits on his hind legs. He looks like a little meerkat. Yeah. And <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> that. That's what he looks like. Yeah. Well, he has a condition. It's called radial hypoplasia, and it means that he either is missing a bone in his forearms, or his bones have grown into each other, so they are shortened. So when he actually walks, he walks on his elbows. So his he walks on his front elbows and his back legs. His, his rear end is way up in the air. Mm. And I have to be careful when I adopted him. One of the conditions was is that I had to have carpet in my house because if he jumps down from a high place and he loves to climb and jump all over places, he's got like kangaroo strength legs. <laughs> When he jumps down, his chin is already so close to the ground because of his front legs that he will he's in danger of breaking his jaw, which he did in his first three months of life at his first foster home. Mm. So, um, but he doesn't, it doesn't slow him down at all. Like he runs through the house, he jumps all over everything. And then he will sit up on his hind legs so he can see normally. And then he takes his front paws together and he does a little begging motion. And it's the most adorable thing ever. I love him. But because of this condition, he walks and his back legs, his, his little hips wiggle all the time, which led to, I was, I am totally not surprised, hip dysplasia, which you often find in bulldogs and similar type animals. It does mean that their hips can become dislocated easier. So we're hoping we go back in for a checkup next week and to see how well his hip is healed. If it's not healing like it's supposed to, there is a surgery they can do, which sounds terrifying. It's called femoral head and neck excision. And they cut off the ball of your femur and part of the bone itself that where it fits into the hip socket. And the tendons and ligaments apparently grow back tighter to hold it in place. Oh. Yeah, doesn't that sound great? Yeah. <laughs> so my poor baby, they couldn't they couldn't even wrap him like they would normally wrap and like wrap up an animal's leg up against its like chest or body to, so they'd be walking on three legs while the dislocated joint heals up. They can't do that to him because he has to have both back legs to walk. Oh man. So we get pain meds and he sleeps a lot. Yeah. We're just trying to keep him all as de-stressed as possible. On the upside, he's been eating and drinking normally. He's been going to the litter box normally. So I think we're finally de-stressing. Because the vet was like, did anything happen in your life? I was like, well, his big brother died, and I started working from home the very next day. So Mm. stress. Yeah. And that was a lot. I am so sorry for verbally dumping on everybody about my cat. (laughs) 
Yeah, my cat's just chilling here in the room with me, Felicia. She's sleeping. For once, I'm on the computer and she's not on the keyboard because that's her thing. She's like, I can ignore <laughs> you for 23 hours of the day, but as soon as you get on the keyboard, it's like, I want to be right there on top of the keyboard so that you pay attention to me. Oh, I feel that. Well, like the entire time I was talking, I was trying to keep Castiel, the other cat, off of my laptop keyboard. Now he's laying mm. on the table next to me. Yep, that's very much like Felicia. Yes, she'll. I, I'll be trying. I'll be trying to edit podcasts, <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, "No, none of that. Play with me." <laughs> Why don't you do that? like in the winter? A lot of times she'll curl up on my lap if I'm watching TV, and I'm like, "Why don't you want to play with me?" Like while I'm watching TV or something like that, you know. Like all she ever does is show me love when she's cold. <laughs> <laughs> Poor thing. <laughs> All right, but that's that's enough for cat talk. You know, that oh. could be another podcast, but that's not the one that we're in, doing right Indeed now. <laughs> it could, but how are you doing? How's how's your time been between our recordings? Uh, I mean, I've got some kind of weird allergic reaction that's got me breaking out in hives everywhere, but we don't know what's causing it, and I don't really want to talk about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I'm itchy and uncomfortable, but at least I'm, I'm managing it right now with Benadryl and Allegra. So you're just high on drugs and trying to stay awake. That's right. Yes, exactly. I've got my caffeine with me. So, you know, <laughs> I'm going to stay awake at, at least as long as we're recording. Sounds good. Because it'd be <laughs> a little weird otherwise, considering you've got the record button over there. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we <laughs> laugh about that. But when I was uh, recording a Sean Castic episode once with Sean, we had another person on, uh, Gary. And Gary actually literally fell asleep on the podcast. Oh my god. We started hearing like snoring sounds and we're like I is he is he really like is this a thing that's happening and then it's just like Sean's like Gary Gary <laughs> you know and he had to do this for like you know 15 20 seconds and finally what what you know and it's like and it was real it wasn't like he was just making a joke or whatever and it's like and so Sean was like this is so staying in so I'm about yeah. to ask if that stayed in because I yeah. really hoped it did <laughs> yeah it was our three-part DS9 episode because we recorded for like four hours or whatever oh talking gosh. about Deep Space Nine and so Sean ended up breaking it into uh, three episodes but yeah, it's on the third episode. I guess we've just been going so long that Gary fell asleep. That's awesome. Yep. So, yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, otherwise, I mean, not a whole lot's going on. Not, not a whole lot's changed. I mean, we put out the first episode of Time Streams. Oh my gosh, it's so good, guys, y'all. If you Okay, but if you're listening to this, you probably already heard it. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just bonus. so people know when we're recording this, we've just put out the first episode. Bonus, though, if you get to the end of the first episode and you're hearing us say our goodbyes and you hear a cat yowl, that was my late Ash. We, that's my baby's yowl forever immortalized in our podcast. Yeah, when you told me that, it was kind of like, oh, because I didn't even think about it while I was editing it. But then you were like, that's Ash's sound. And I was like, oh, it was the best thing ever that you left that in. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, when you were saying it was our first podcast, I'm over here in the living room waving my arms in the air like a Muppet, like somebody can see me. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Lots of people do that. <laughs> anyway, I'll listen to podcasts and it'll be two people talking and then the guy's like, you know, no one can see what you're doing. You have to actually say, you know, for the show. But yeah, so we watched The Edge of Destruction for this. And it's kind of an unusual story because it's a two-parter and a lot of them are more than that. How did you feel just watching that one? <laughs> it's a little bit of an unusual story, so I'm kind of curious about just, like, initial thoughts. Initial thoughts? It was weird, and I think, like, every five notes, I'm sitting here going, what is going on? In fact, one of my notes <laughs> literally says, is this some Twilight Zone who? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like you feel like at any moment, the camera will just pan over, and it'll be Rod Serling standing in front of the TARDIS console or something, being like, watch as you will, four characters trying to solve a riddle, you know, like something like that. Oh, it was crazy, but it was interesting. I just, I was sitting there going, I have no idea. <laughs> the whole reason this one was made was because, originally because of the cost overruns they had in the first episode that they were doing, the BBC got cold feet and they said, okay, we're only going to let you do 13 episodes. And so then they're like, well, our first one's a four episode one and our second one's a seven parter. And the next one we were going to do is another seven parter. So it's like, if we only have 13, we'd be two episodes into the third serial. 
and they might pull the plug and that would be really weird. So they decided to do a two-parter to get the number up to 13. So if the show had been canceled, this would have literally been the last story. That would have been so weird because I was like, I felt like this was maybe their Shades of Grey episode (laughs) from Next Gen. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking of the... (laughs) No, gosh, no. Okay. I was like, like, where are you going with this one? (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, that was the episode in Next Gen where Riker is unconscious and they're having to go back through his memories Uh, or something. And it was the clip episode because they totally had run out of money. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was the writer's strike too, I think. I think so. I would not be surprised. That's why they didn't, they, it was like, we didn't just come up with a clip show with just like a few lines of dialogue and that way we don't have to pay any writers. But yeah, so the thing was, they had an alternate ending, basically, that they had been canceled that little bit at the end, like after they've solved the problem, instead of them talking about everything and then like going on to the next story, it would have been them like arriving back in England. I could see it would have been disappointing, but I could see it. Right. But uh, so then, you know, nobody would remember Doctor Who if that's all that it was. But right. That obviously didn't have by this point, like they were fairly confident in the show it was getting some good reviews and everything. And they had kind of gotten the costs under control because, you know, the point that the producer made was, of course, the first one's going to be more expensive because we have to build the TARDIS set. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, but then as long as we go under budget for, you know, a few story, you know, a few episodes, then it'll all average out. But she's like, but we need to have those episodes to do that. So this one was made with no guest cast and with just the TARDIS. And they just had to create a few more rooms for the TARDIS. So they didn't have much in the way of sets. And so that was their way of sort of like recouping the cost mm-hmm. also. So, yeah. So that was the reason why we have this story. <laughs> Because it does feel so weird because it isn't like, we we don't actually go anywhere. It's just in the TARDIS. Very strange. Yeah. So when it starts off, we get that tie back to the end of the last one where they're all just standing around while the doctor's working the controls and there's the flash and they fall on the floor. I don't know if you noticed the music after that when like like the new episode actually starts. But I really like that music. It was stock music because they couldn't, you know, afford a composer because, again, they were trying to do this one cheap. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of when they're introducing the Jawas in Star Wars in the very mm-hmm. first one. Like, it sounds like almost like a John Williams-y piece of music there, and I really like that. It did kind of have that vibe. Yeah. But then that whole initial sequence is so weird. Oh, it is. Like, I was like, Barbara's the first one up. Why does she look drunk? Yeah. And then it was just, it just got weirder. Right, because right, nobody seems to recognize each other, or if they do, it's just kind of like, yeah, I think I know who you, like, nobody seems to be like, you know, they're all kind of out of it. Right, like, Susan comes in, her head's cocked to the side, looking like mm-hmm. some sort of weird robot. And it actually, like, seems really creepy, because, like, Ian slumped over a chair for a lot of the scene, because Susan and Barbara are talking about the doctor, who's on the floor, and he's cut his head, and they're talking about they need to give him some water and whatever. And... Suddenly, though, the camera pans away, and then when it pans back, Ian's suddenly standing, and it's almost like it's like a sinister, like, horror movie thing, like, when the killer's, like, right behind you, like, the way that it's framed, you know, and everything, but it's Ian, so, like, we shouldn't be worried about Ian, but it's just just creepy the way everything, like, sort of seems to happen. Like, we don't see him get up, and so it just seems weird that he's suddenly, like, right there. Mm-hmm. He's calling her Miss Wright. What, mm-hmm. the, what was the last time he called her that? Right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you get the impression that for whatever reason they've forgotten some things, or their you know their memory's been messed up. Yeah, but but Susan totally knows the doctor as her grandfather because she immediately went to hysterics. Well, but that makes sense, right? She's known him her whole life, conceivably. So I mean, you you would think that she wouldn't forget him, even if she lost, even if you lost several months of memory still remember your grandfather i would hope so right (laughs) but yeah and it's kind of weird though because like barbara seems to be even though she's acting like she's having a hard time remembering who people are or whatever she's acting the most normal i would say and just confused but ian acts like he's in a daze Mm mm-hmm through most of this episode, really. Yeah. And so, yeah, you kind of get this sort of unsettling feeling. Yeah, Susan acts like she's possessed half the time. Mm-hmm. It's all kind of creepy. It's all kind of strange. 
Susan goes to the food machine and it's telling her that it's out of water, but then there's water there anyways. So she's able to bring that to her grandfather. But oh, that's right. And then when she comes back in, the doors are open. Yeah. And all that you see is like a white light. Oh, and she does not like this at all. Right, yeah, because the doors aren't supposed to be able to open on their own. They don't even know where they are. They don't know if they're moving or stationary. Like Barbara assumes that they've crashed, but that's because she's thinking of it like a normal spaceship, right, rather than something that can move through matter and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And Susan's like, no, that's impossible. But as soon as Ian tries to go towards the doors to see what's up, they close. Right. I mean, he could have tried rushing them because they didn't exactly right. seem like the fastest doors. <laughs> right. I don't know if you noticed either, but um, they kind of like bounced a little bit as they were closing, <laughs> like when they hit each other. So it's like <laughs> they haven't quite gotten the knack yet to closing them. I was trying to gloss over it because they didn't quite close flush a few times, but then you could right. see them slowly pull back in a little bit more. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah. And I mean, Susan says something. Because this is a thread that they, they, they like shows up a few times where she starts talking about like maybe something's inside with them. Right. And that's what made me think is, are, is there other ghosts? What are we on? That? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I mean, this, this, this story, like the closest thing that you could compare it to is like a haunted house kind of story. Because mm-hmm. people are here in this place and weird things are happening that are unexplainable. They're acting strange. And, and yeah, it's very much using those tropes. But it all turns out to be a red herring. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I saw someone write somewhere that he thinks that the writer was just making it up as he went along. I, I don't know that that's quite true. I think it might have been a deliberate red herring, but I don't know. Maybe he, did with, maybe he was like, I don't know what's causing it either. I'll just figure it out as I go. <laughs> Dude, now I'm really curious. <laughs> oh, and then Susan tries to go to the console, and then she does the, like, oh, I'm in great pain acting before falling over. Oh, yeah, there was a screech, there's the head tilt, there's the grab the back of the neck, and then pass out legs all splayed. And yet her skirt stays in place. That's right. Yep. As, as would happen. Mm-hmm. You know, later they talk about it as feeling like you're hit on the back of the neck. Like, when you're near the console, but I'm not sure that's how I would look if I was... I think I would slump forward if I was hit on the back of the neck. You would think so, but at the same time, when they just talk about it being a pain in the back of the neck, I actually was... And the way they were, like, clutching their heads, or at least Susan was, I actually wondered for a brief moment before we knew what was going on, I might have it typed down, I think, in the second episode notes, is this meningitis? Because you can't, with spinal meningitis, touching your chin to your chest is impossible with that pain. So, of course, you would tilt your head back. So, I don't know. My brain went in weird places. No. Well, I mean, I can see why this one would do that to you. <laughs> <laughs> so then Ian picks up Susan to take her to bed. Which is the weirdest looking bed I've ever seen. Uh, yes, I, I, I was going to talk about the beds because you can't look at those without aching in your oh. back and being like oh my god how did they sleep on those oh it's so awful and i'm almost positive he copped a feel before he put her down yeah i had noticed that too where his hand actually goes and then he notices like and he, and he moves it really quick yep. <laughs> but yeah so like these beds for anyone who's just listening to the podcast and hasn't watched the story they look like an s shape that's been turned on its side. So it's like an S that's been turned on its side. Why would you want to sleep on something? So basically your butt goes down, your legs go up and over. Like, so your feet, you know, your legs kind of come up where your knees are up on the, like a, like a little hill kind of thing. And then your feet are down and your head is up. And it's like, just nothing about that seems like a pleasant or comfortable way of sleeping. Like every joint in my body hurt looking at that. (laughs) I mean, I think someone thought, hey, this looks futuristic or space agey or whatever. And I'm just like, no, that looks like pain. I mean, to be perfectly honest, whenever we see Susan next with a pair of scissors in her hands, looking like she's going to stab the crap out of Ian, I I blame the bed. (laughs) She wasn't getting enough sleep. (laughs) You know, waking up cramped like that is just not fun. I mean, and then she proceeds to stab the bed, so... Right. Well, that's true. She's taking out her aggression on the thing that's really causing the pain. I see. Yeah, you know, the scissors thing is something that got them in a lot of trouble. Really? Yeah, because they were using, like, a common household object that kids could imitate. Oh. Yeah. 
was something where the producer was basically, I didn't have kids. I didn't even think about it. But yeah, especially within the BBC, people were like, oh my God, why did you do this? Wow. And they got some nasty letters and things from it. I did notice the musical cue was very, very psycho-ish. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I kind of wonder about that, though. When was Psycho made? I don't know. You know? I can IMDB it. I'm yeah, IMDB it really quick, because that's, you know, I idly wondered that, and then I forgot to check on it, because I think this might be older than Psycho. Maybe. Psycho was made in 1960. Oh, okay. No, then yeah. No, then yeah. I think it's probably a pretty obvious cue then that they took from Psycho. Yeah. Yeah. And so the doctors, like, so while Ian's taking care of Susan and, and she, you know, <laughs> takes out some scissors at him, the doctor's all with Barbara and he's waking up. They wrap some kind of like a bandage around him. It's some sort of like futuristic bandage that it changes colors as it heals the wound. I kind of thought that was cool. And I actually watched it change colors as it healed the wound. You know, the bandage actually did become more white. Yeah, no, I I think that that was a good, yeah, that was, that was good how they did that. They obviously changed out the bandage a couple of times while the story was going along to give, convey that it was working. So that was a good bit of continuity there with it. And yeah, the one thing we didn't mention about Susan though, the reason she's like holding scissors out is she's saying, who are you to Ian? Like she doesn't even recognize him. She doesn't know why he's there. Even her voice is weird at this point, which was what got me on the whole possession thing. She's like, who are you? Did you notice the hair? Oh, the hair was crazy. (laughs) She had like crazy hair and crazy eyes and weird, creepy voice going on. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah. She's definitely relishing being able to go like a little wild. Caroline Ford, she, she's happy to do this because, yeah, she goes for it. <laughs> I believed it. For anyone who knows, like, uh, Dragon Ball Z, her hair, like, not the color, but her hair looks like she's gone Super Saiyan. It's like, <laughs> it's like sticking up, you know, it's pointy. It's, <laughs> it's really crazy. <laughs> and somehow that just happened because she touched the console because, right? you know, she hasn't had time to style it. So. I blame the bed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's the ultimate bedhead right there. <laughs> yeah, nothing entered into the TARDIS. They're possessed <laughs> by the bed. Those are angry beds. Those angry beds. <laughs> and so, yeah, the doctor's thinking that they must have landed somewhere. Barbara takes up that thread, the idea of something could have gotten into the ship. And he says that she has absurd theories. And I was like, right. really? You are t- telling Barbara that she has some absurd <laughs> theories? Really? Yeah, I mean, because they're, you know, Ian's thinking, like, what, like a person or an animal or something got in? And she's like, or another intelligence. Like, Barbara's the one actually thinking about this. Like, we've already seen weird mutants in tanks, you know? (laughs) We saw a swamp full of horrible monsters. Why can't we just imagine that there's some sort of other kind of not necessarily corporeal kind of creature that could have come in here? Like, these two episodes, I have, like, named Barbara my favorite character because of them. Oh, yeah. I mean, Barbara's the best. I mean, I, I she is so amazing. And I don't think, because, and, and, and it's funny, because I, I, um, I was listening to some people talk about this a few weeks back, that Barbara doesn't fit into what people today consider to be the typical companion. And so because of that, she ends up getting overlooked. But... Barbara's so I mean Barbara's amazing like she is assertive she's smart in this period also when the doctor is not necessarily the most moral person she's sort of like the moral center of the group also so I mean yeah I I I love Barbara I think that she's great and I think that a lot of people should spend a little more time with Barbara because I think she gets dismissed a lot agreed I can see that. But yeah, but while they're doing all this, Susan sneaks out of the room, grabs the scissors, turns around, and walks off. Is she wearing the choir robe nightgown at that point? Yes. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, Barbara's back in the skirt, which I preferred her in the cool, weird fall pants that had the cutouts on the side. But now she's back in that damn skirt. Yeah. But yeah, the episode started with her in those fall pants. I loved it. Her leather S&M thing going on. <laughs> All fashion carries on. <laughs> but then also Susan, because they've been talking about this, she's overhearing them and like she overhears Ian saying, don't tell Susan that something might be in the ship or something like that when 
it's not really something they've like really pursued or know, but Susan just hears the part about something being in the ship. And so she thinks that that's a fact. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so then Ian and the doctor try to look to see if they can figure out what's damaged by going to the fault locator, but the doctor's having a hard time seeing the actual readout, but after they go through everything, Ian says, well, according to this, nothing's broken. The doctor started getting extra paranoid, like he'd been like seriously drinking some Gatorade or something, because he was like... <laughs> going off and barbara's the one standing up to him yeah no that's uh, <laughs> I, I like that you link gatorade with paranoia <laughs> that's why i was laughing <laughs> it's the first thing i thought of <laughs> yeah no i mean the doctor's clearly suspicious of ian and barbara because he's thinking that they've sabotaged something yeah so they can so that way they can hold him hostage and he they can force him to take them back home and mm. i'm like they, they don't even know how to work this thing they don't know why would they do this mm. but yeah barbara stands up to him and she does not back down nope <laughs> oh, she tells him he should get down on his hands and knees and thank them for saving his life twice now <laughs> oh that's later that's later that's oh. the second one <laughs> but yes i talk about that too yeah okay yeah, yeah, so we have this whole other scene, though, where after, Su- you know, where Barbara goes in to check on Susan, and Barbara's just, like, changing, like, a, you know, wet compress on her forehead kind of thing, and then she's like, you know, without batting an eye, Barbara's not acting like anything's weird, she says, and Susan's looking like she's asleep, she's like, Susan, why don't you give me the scissors? <laughs> and then Susan gets up, and she's got the scissors in her hands again. So, yeah, we get Susan being kind of scary again. and uh, But I love how Barbara just kind of handles it. Like, she's like, I know what's going on. I'm going to take care of this. She's chill. She's yeah. got this. <laughs> but, yeah, Susan is, is thinking they've lied to her and that they're trying to hide from her that something's in the ship. And then after Barbara gets the scissors away from her, they start talking about how, like, the shadows are really creepy and... Again, it's starting to do that sort of haunted house sort of thing again of the, you know, the idea of like there are things moving that we're not quite sure about and the, the shadows seem unnaturally large and all that kind of thing. So they're sort of setting that stage. Isn't this like when the, the weird clock looking thing shows up out of nowhere? I don't know if it showed up out of nowhere, but it sure, sure seemed like it to me because my note is what in the world is that thing with like four exclamation points? Right, right, right. So what happens after that is Ian comes in after Barbara's gotten the scissors away from Susan and everything, Ian comes in and says the doctor's going to turn on the scanner to see what's outside. Susan freaks out, jumps out of bed, runs into the room, is like, no, 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 don't do it, don't do it, you're going to get electrocuted. It's because that's what she thought happened to Susan. Right, and so, yeah, so Susan's saying, like, yeah, don't do not do it, and the doctor's like, uh, that's weird, I didn't feel any pain, and that's when the whole suspicion thing starts saying, and he starts looking at Ian and Barbara because... He's basically saying they hit him and Susan on the back of the neck. And then Susan's joining in on the doctor's side. Right. And so the image, like, so he turns on the scanner and it shows, like, a bunch of weird things. First, it shows a photograph of a field in England. Well, they they say it's England, but I mean, I don't know how you can tell that from just a photograph of a field. But even the doctor says, that's not a picture or a video. He's like, that's just a photograph. Right. It's not like they were just being cheap and just putting a photograph up. It was supposed to be a photograph. And then it shows them another place that looks like a jungle. And Susan says that's the planet Quinnus where they almost lost the TARDIS. Mm -hmm. And then it shows a planet, a planet further out with stars around it. And then like really zoomed out where it looks like, you know, it's just a bunch of stars. And then there's a big flash. Yeah, it's utterly creepy. It makes no sense. Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, that's when he starts uh, accusing them of sabotaging. That's when Barbara tells him that he should get down on he should get down on his hands and knees and thank them. And then she turns towards like when she goes to storm off, that's when she turns around and sees the clock. And I'm sitting here going, What? <laughs> Where was this? Because I'm pretty sure that I hadn't seen this before and it looked really weird. Yeah, so there had been a clock there before, but it was just a normal clock, but now it's like the face is melted on the clock. It looks creepy. It's like it's completely out of a Dali painting. Right. Although Barbara's reaction to it just seems like a little too much. What, you mean screaming and then ripping her watch off and throwing right. it across the TARDIS, which I also didn't get why she did that? Right. Well, when Ian looks at his watch, like they blurred the camera to make it look like Ian's watch had melted off. So I think the idea is like all timepieces, like their faces had melted. And so Barbara 
threw her watch away because she was she didn't know what was going on and was upset and it's useless now anyway because the face is melted okay i was kind of curious because i just I, I saw ian freak out a little look kind of despairing and but barbara did lose it a little bit and that was the only time she's actually lost it during this whole two-parter right yeah so i mean <sighs> because I mean, they talk about time being taken away you know quote unquote and i think that's the whole idea of that was and and the thing is the effect doesn't really work very well because like i say when ian's looking at his watch they do show the watch but they just have like it's obviously just like a blur effect because they didn't want to make a watch with a melted face because that'd be mm-hmm. harder because it's so small and so it doesn't quite come across that the same thing has happened to the watch but i think that's what they were going for okay that makes sense now but then Ian's like, well, we can't be responsible for this. <laughs> <laughs> and then the doctor just somehow suddenly shows up with, with drinks. A tray of cups. And I'm sitting here going, I would not put it past him to drug them at this moment. <laughs> right. And guess what happens? Oh, gosh. My entire, like, next note. <laughs> Don't drink it. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, hold on. Those are nightgowns. That's really creepy. Yeah. Also, why is the doctor coming in while they're asleep? That's also creepy. Oh my god, he did drug them. Because I knew it! How, I mean, come on, change of complete change of heart. Coming in all smiles with a tray of cups. We're going to have a nightcap. It's going to help you sleep. Yeah, we all need time to think. That's what he's basically saying. But oh yeah, and god. then Ian's trying, like, the girls go off, like, Barbara's obviously not okay. And Ian's like, doctor you know with all this stuff going on we can't afford to have us upset at each other you need to apologize to barbara and the doctor just says it's no time for codes and manners right oh my god well the only consolation i had was that i hadn't seen any of them drink it right and and by the way the doctor when he's waving his hand in everybody's faces and going into the room with the ladies and looking at them creepily was not okay (laughs) but he also has a really creepy laugh like he had sinister evil villain chuckle I don't know. I always think his chuckle is more like a Yoda sort of chuckle. <laughs> you know, kind of thing. I Not when he's like, that. you know, rubbing his hands over the people he's just drugged. <laughs> well, it's a problem that if you notice, none of those rooms have doors either. Yeah, it's also not okay. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, he checks that everybody's asleep. And then our cliffhanger is, he turns around and hands close around his throat. I really wanted them to be Barbara's hands, but I knew that they were too big to be Barbara's hands, but I still <laughs> wanted her to be the one. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. That, that would have felt more um, satisfying. It would have, so much more. <laughs> and so then we go into episode two, which is the brink of disaster. <laughs> It's like somebody got out their thesaurus and was like, hmm, edge of destruction, brink of disaster. And don't they actually say that phrase like two different times in this episode? Um, well, he, he kind of like, I, I don't know if it was he screwed it up or if it was deliberately written slightly different. He says the brink of destruction, which is sort of like a combination of both names. Okay. Both titles. I don't know if he was supposed to say the brink of disaster, but then just kind of flubbed it with destruction. <laughs> but either way, it doesn't really matter. So, yeah, so we find out <clears throat> the person strangling the doctor is Ian. Woo! He didn't drink the Kool-Aid! Right. Well, apparently he did drink it to some extent because he's like, oh, doctor, don't. Right. Barbara looks a lot more clear-eyed. Right. So, like, the, what they're trying to tell us in the story is that Ian, in a sort of drug-induced stupor, was trying to pull the doctor away from the console, but the only way he could do that was by grabbing his neck. (laughs) It makes perfect sense to me. (laughs) That's how I grab people away from the stove all the time. Because later they even do it where, like, Ian's on the floor, he doesn't know what's going on, but Barbara's there then, and then she turns around to pay attention to something the doctor's saying, and Ian, like, is lifting himself up and grabs her neck. And she's trying to pry his hands off. It's okay, Ian, it's okay. (laughs) First of all, Barbara. Oh, my gosh. That's not the reaction you should have to being throttled by some guy. But the (laughs) second one is... I don't buy for a second that this is a natural way of somebody, even under the influence of some sort of drugs, to like, you would go for something bigger to grab. You wouldn't go for the, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't seem right. He is English. Maybe he has some repressed anger issues. (laughs) I guess. But of course, then the doctor's just like, ah, see, he tried to strangle me. It's all, you know, it's all your fault, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
And then Susan shows up and, and sides with him because she's like, you've both been acting so strangely lately. But yeah, meanwhile, while Ian's on the floor, he's saying like, don't touch it, doctor. So they're trying to imply that he was trying to save him. Right. Yeah, no, I think he was just trying to throttle him. <laughs> Blame him. If somebody tried to drug me and then come <laughs> stare at me and, and cackle evilly over my sleeping form, I'd want to strangle him too. Mm. Yeah, then the doctor threatens to throw them off the ship. Yeah, there was that. Oh, what? okay, there's a, there's a point where the doctor says something about underestimating somebody, and I mm. swear he flubbed that line because I've never heard him stumble over a word before. Mm. But I was like, hey, I wonder if they just didn't have time to do or money to do extra takes. Yeah, no, they were only allowed to cut four times an episode. So that might have been it. I was just it's it's very yeah. rare that I have noticed that, which I have to commend them for because Dark Shadows was full of that. Oh, don't don't worry, we'll get there. Okay. William Hartnell was not a well man, and his sickness becomes more apparent as his time on the show continues. No. Where it led to him having a harder time concentrating and remembering his lines. So, yeah, no, it's at the time he didn't realize he was he didn't know until years later, but that's what was going on. Okay. But that's also why, like, sometimes people will say, you know, some people think that William Hartnell was the greatest guy ever. You'll hear, like, some of the guest people do interviews, and they'll be like, oh, man, he was great. He was wonderful, like, really charming, whatever. And other people are like, oh, my God, he was the hardest person to ever work with. And it apparently had to do with the level of pain he was in at any given time, whether or not he was really difficult or whether he was charming and and friendly. Poor dude. Yeah. So just a little behind the scenes there. But then the doctor says something to the effect of, and so this is the thing, because like people talk about how harsh the, the, this doctor is, but then he also says, if they confess, maybe I'll change my mind. So I think what he's trying to do is just press them into confessing. I'm not sure he really would just chuck them out of the ship when he doesn't even know like if they're anywhere that they could survive. Oh, no, I totally believe he'd do it. He is that much of a jerk. Oh. <laughs> But just as he's saying all this, then there's this big, loud foghorn kind of sound. Oh, yeah, that was weird. Yeah, and apparently that's like the fault locator telling them that everything is broken. Like when he told him before, nothing was broken. Now it's telling them everything is broken. Oh, and he blames it on Ian and Barbara. Oh, no, no. After the foghorn thing lights, because that's when he's like, I, I realized that it can't be you. It's too big of a problem. And then he's, that's when he starts talking about the ship is on the point of disintegration. Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. Uh, then Barbara says, this is when Barbara starts like getting weird. And I don't know, maybe she drank too much of the drug stuff or whatever. But it's <laughs> like, she's like, time was taken away from them, but it's being given back because it's running out. Look, I like the fact that this woman <laughs> who was drug along on this adventure, she didn't actually ask for this. She had to wrap her mind around so many crazy new things. She's the one who's over here willing to think outside the box and put clues together in ways that her mind normally would not be wanting to put together. Um, Ian's, you know, still over here going, this can't be real. I can't believe, you know, like Mm. Ian does. But, But she's like totally trying to work this out. No, it's true. It's true. And the thing is, because, yeah, because, like, the, the, the lights are flashing on the fault locator, and Susan's like, it's every 15 seconds because she's counting it. And so that's why Barbara's saying the light on the locator is giving them time again where they didn't have it when the clock face is melted. And so sort of a, I mean, she's trying to make sense of what's going on there. And then there's another flash, and then the column in the middle of the of the console goes up, and the doctor starts freaking out because... That can't happen. Yeah, that's the energy is right underneath there. And if the column were to pop out, then the energy would come out and destroy them. Is it Barbara who says, who suggests that the TARDIS is trying to tell them something? And the doctor's like, the TARDIS can't think. Right. Um, At which point I start laughing. So yeah, Barbara's the one that's trying to, she's basically getting to the point of, it's the ship somehow trying to warn them that something is wrong. And tell them how to fix it. Right. And the doctor, yeah, initially dismisses it, but then he starts talking about, well, it's got a memory bank, so, you know, maybe it can think like a machine thinks. And, you know, so it started to get to the idea. But it's interesting because that was one of the things I was going to talk about in my final thoughts about the fact that the doctor takes this as a revelation, not as something like, well, of course the TARDIS thinks. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't even believe it. It's a machine. Right. And then the doctor, because they're running through the sequence again with the scanner where it's showing them the same pictures it was showing them before. 
And the doctor tells the, you know, Barbara and Susan to go and stare out the doors when they open and tell them they can see anything. And then he whispers to Ian, I lied. I said we had 15 minutes left before, you know, it all goes up. He's like, it's, it's really five minutes. And my note was, I hate when men do, when men do that. Let's protect the gentleness of the women. <laughs> they can't handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, it got dark. Like, most of these stories were novelized as books. And a lot of times it was a different writer writing the book version because either the original writer didn't want to do it or they had passed away or whatever. Right. And the novelization version of this has the doctor suggesting to Ian that they push Susan and Barbara out to just save them the agony of dying. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a little more hardcore. They didn't go there with this. Whoa. Yeah. I can imagine the calls they would have gotten then. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we'd be looking at something like at the end of end of what was it? The Mist by Stephen King with mm. the, the movie version, which was not okay. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Then, yeah, Susan freaks out because there's nothing outside. Okay. Thank you, Susan. I think <laughs> yeah, we figured you, that Susan. out. <laughs> Go back to stabbing things with scissors. <laughs> right. Um, and so, yeah, then the doctors say, like, the last bit where it's like the planet sort of zooming out, he's like, well, that's showing us our journey. So then he starts talking about they're at the birth of a solar system and that it's too much power for the ship to handle. And that's why they're going to be destroyed. And then Ian says, what did you do? Like, what did you press? Mm-hmm. And then the doctor says, well, I pressed the fast return switch, which... I love is labeled in Sharpie. Yes, that, that I was wondering about that. <laughs> it's, like, it's on the console. And then they find out the true cause of the problem. It's stuck. The, the spring broke in the button, and so it thinks it's still being pushed down. <laughs> I could not believe it. Like, I, jaw dropped. Are you kidding me? The switch is stuck? <laughs> and then even better. Okay, so we already did our little science, you know, because we, we have to teach the kids about something in either science or history every episode. Mm-hmm. We already did our little science thing talking about, like, the birth of the solar system. But then the doctor has to explain how buttons work to Susan and explain, like, oh, like, if I press in this button on this flashlight, the light comes on. But when I, like, release my finger, the spring pops it out and it turns off. If the spring was broken, then it would be like it's always pressed down. The light would just stay on. I'm like, really? Susan? <laughs> Who, okay, she's supposed to be 15. So even if she is a human girl at 15, I'd be like, that's way too basic. But it's Susan from Advanced Civilization. Right? (laughs) I mean, did you see what she was doing in classes with Ian and Barbara? Yeah, exactly. We don't know how spring works. It's cool. But see, here's the thing. And this is why I'm of two minds about this. Because a lot of people complain about this as being way too dumb an explanation. Is that as an engineer, I can tell you, this is the kind of thing that actually happens. You spend a day troubleshooting. Like, oh my God, what the, you know, like what is wrong with this? Why won't it work? You're checking each and every piece of machinery and then you find out it's not plugged in. Yep. No, that makes perfect sense. I just couldn't (laughs) believe it. The most basic problem. And that's not what you checked first. You checked all the complicated stuff first and then you it's, like, it's the switch that you labeled in Sharpie that's broken. Right. It's the only writing I've seen on that console. Yeah, no, I mean, so apparently that was done just so William Hartnell could find the thing. <laughs> and But they didn't take it off. You know, like, that was for rehearsals and someone didn't take it off. It's perfect. I right. love it. So, so now it's immortalized within, <laughs> you know, the video. It confirms my feelings that he just doesn't really know how to work the TARDIS. Right. So he had to actually write that on there to remind him. <laughs> right. Yeah, so like the doctor's happy, you know, everything's working again. They're, you know, they dematerialize, you know, they're going to get away from being in, you know, that dangerous situation. But Barbara and Ian just look like they need some time, right? Like they're just like sort of staring off into the distance and... Susan's like, you gotta say something to them. Then Ian comes up and he's like, it's all right, doctor. You don't have to say anything. I know what you're thinking. Ian's taking it okay. Yeah, but the doctor is worse at apologies than some of my exes. (laughs) Oh, no. But Barbara, he goes up to her and he tries to say, hey, your instinct and intuition went up against my learning and knowledge and you were the one that was right and we all owe you our lives. And she just walks off. 
Now, this was one of my favorite notes. I was like, that is not enough. Yeah. Barbara deserves more than the pitiful attempt at an apology. You have accused her, demeaned her, insulted her, mansplained her, and tried to drug her. Like, not okay. No. To be fair, he did drug everybody. And still, <laughs> still, like, he has, like, been harsh on I... Barbara. And Barbara is the one who was sitting there. Put... She's the one who put together the clues that said the TARDIS was trying to give them a hint that something was wrong. Right, because, yeah, that was the thing about the console we didn't mention was that the only part that you could go to safely was the bar... it was the side that had the fast return switch. That also had the scanner switch, which is why they were able to use that. Exactly. Like this, Barbara had it down, even if she didn't know what it was trying to tell them. She knew it was trying to tell them something. Yep. Nope. I mean, that's that's the thing, and that's why she was the key piece of this puzzle. She was the one that was able to put it to the point where then the doctor could take it from there. But yeah. So then we skip some time. Barbara's sitting. She's changed. It's obviously the next day because they've added this sort of lounge area in the TARDIS right off the console room. With that giant water machine. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she's sitting on the couch there, and the doctor comes to her, and he's talking to her, and he's, he's clearly trying to be conciliatory and everything. And she's like, why do you even care? Mm-hmm. And then he says, as we learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. And he's basically trying to apologize to her. And she, you know, when Susan comes and says, are you coming to Barbara? And she's like, yeah, I'll come. So they're all kind of moving on now. Barbara's being a lot more gracious than I would have been. (laughs) Barbara's a really classy lady. I was like, Barbara's seriously smart and intelligent and wise. Mm. And they don't even realize it. Yeah, no, I mean, she is. I mean, it's she is an amazing character. You haven't gotten to her best story yet, either. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is, like, the beginning of what I feel like is the really strong stuff for her, but she gets some really good stuff coming up. Okay. But, yeah, so everybody, they, they talk about how they're on a planet. The air is good, but it's cold, so everybody's putting on big coats and everything, and Susan's throwing snowballs at them in the console. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> But yeah, as, as it goes to end, they look on the scanner screen and Susan's run outside again and she's like, look at this giant footprint. It must have been made by a giant. I was actually hoping for a Yeti. Well, how do you know you don't get a Yeti? I've got my fingers crossed. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, so that's the end of The Edge of Destruction. I mean, it's a short one, but it's got a lot going on. That's for sure. <laughs> it felt like very David Lynchy. Like, I didn't know where I was half the time. It was, like, really messing with my head. Yeah, well, I mean, it's trying to make you feel... Because, like, what they've done is they've taken, like, in the last two stories, it's been like, we need to get to the ship because the ship is the safe place. Now the ship is not safe. Right, and now the ship is not. So it's supposed to be putting you on edge. And the whole, like, the theme of the story is paranoia. Mm-hmm. Because they're all suspicious and scared and worried about each other you know like these people were thrown together and now they sort of have to deal with the fact that they're living together and does this kind of situation destroy them or not and it nearly did but from this point onward i think that the the writers kind of use this as a point to sort of slightly retool the doctor okay because from this point onward he is not anywhere near as harsh as he has been i can't wait to get to these i mean honestly while these two episodes were some serious mind messing episodes Mm -hmm. they have been my two favorite barbara episodes like they they have sealed my my love of barbara yeah, no, Barbara is great. And I, I, I mean, that's the thing, though. And I like when a companion does that. I mean, and as Doctor Who goes on, the Doctor becomes so often like the sort of like, he is the moral heart and center and, and you know, you don't argue with the Doctor. But I love this. I love when people can take the Doctor to task and put him in his place. And so Barbara is great for that. Yeah, it's one of the big reasons I love Donna as a companion mm-hmm. in the new Who is because she didn't take crap from the doctor. She called him out on his actions and his moral high horse. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's awesome. I like that. So I, I like that Barbara did that too. She was not afraid to stand up to him. She held her ground. She didn't back down. Mm-hmm. And she let him know. She's like, I think you're kind of cold and I, you don't care about us. Yeah, like I said, just, just, just watch for more because we got more <laughs> good stuff coming. I'm glad. 
So, all right. So let's let's talk about the others. So we talked about Barbara. What about Ian this episode? Ian was weird. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, half the time, I never know what's going on in his brain anyway. He still seems to want to fight against everything that's going on. Like, he wants to hold himself grounded in what he knows can actually happen. I feel like his brain is just still fighting for that. And then, of course, you know, he tries to grab people by their neck with the weird, <laughs> wide, crazy eyes and... I, maybe maybe Susan coming after him with a pair of scissors affected him in ways that we don't know. Maybe he was really attached to those beds and seeing her stab one of them multiple times really bothered him. Again, I don't know, but Ian was, I feel like Ian was really affected by some drugs. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. I don't know if this is an example of William Russell just not caring and just deciding this script sucks, so I'm just not going to do anything with it. Or if this was him trying to be like, hey, I got to sell this idea that there's something possessing us to like really sell like the sort of like idea, uh, you know, so that people are thinking that's what's going on. And him trying to act sort of dazed and confused as a way of being like, hey, maybe that's what it is. Maybe Ian's possessed. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, though, for him acting that way, it put him more in the background and let Barbara shine more. And I was okay with that. No, that's true. What about Susan? Susan looked like something out of a Japanese horror movie. <laughs> You know, like, oh, oh, I gotta find it. So some of the novelizations have been translated into Japanese, oh and God. they did like their own Japanese covers. Uh-huh. And so, actually, uh, if you want to see like an anime depiction of Susan, there is a picture for that. I do want to see this. <laughs> Hopefully, not from this episode, because honestly, she was like something out of like the ring with her head cocked to the side, <laughs> hair all messed up, eyes wide, and her voice being like, "I don't know you." Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, she terrified me. That's why I was completely sure she was possessed. She's good at doing creepy. She really is. And that was the thing. I mean, she, uh, you know, the actress talks about it. Too often, they wanted her to just be like she's just an ordinary teenage girl. And that's what she hated because she's like, I'm supposed to be an alien. And they didn't write stuff to really capitalize on that, like make her seem like strange and odd and kind of offbeat. I think this episode definitely brought home that she isn't human, no matter how much she may look like one. Right. So, yeah, no, I, th- I think I think she really enjoyed it, and she really went for it. And then the doctor. Um, he's a paranoid a-hole. <laughs> I mean, he got better toward the end when he finally had to, you know, when Susan, when Barbara called him on it, like when they were sitting on the couch. Right. Well, and that's the thing. I think that's the point of the, I mean, if anything else, as far as the importance of the story, other than they need to do one, you know, it's a functional story because they need to do one on the cheap. But I think that that's the thing that's that's the most important is that the doctor was forced to realize that he was wrong. Up until this point, even with the whole thing of sabotaging the Mercury and forcing them to go down to the city and everything else, at the end of the day, they got away with their lives and <laughs> nothing really like impacted them or whatever. And in this case, like he was forced to come to the realization that without Barbara, he would have died. Yeah, but he couldn't admit that in front of everybody. He could right. only admit it in front of her after she called him on his crap. And I want, I want him to acknowledge that she is that awesome and she deserves that acknowledgement in front of everybody. So no, he's still kind of a jerk to me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much I'm gonna like him, but I'm I'm, okay. I'm, I'm watching it for Barbara now. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Let's. <laughs> we can just call this Barbara and 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 the doctor, and I'd be okay, okay with that. <laughs> All right. Well, we could definitely do worse because Barbara's amazing. I mean, who in, who in this episode do you find the most engaging or whose performance do you, does really stand out to you, has always stood out to you? Well, I mean, I mean, if we talk about performance, I think both Barbara and the, I mean, I think William Hartnell's acting his brains out in this one. I mean, like, he's, uh, as far as performances go, I think they're both good. I mean, don't get me wrong. The doctor can perform. Don't get me wrong. He can perform. I, I love when I can hate a character because they're so good at acting it. Right. But yeah, I mean, as far as who was the MVP of the story, I mean, it's definitely Barbara. Yeah, but who do you like? I mean, it doesn't have to be the MVP. I mean, did you prefer Ian and his weird druggy strangling? <laughs> I mean, you might have. No, I mean, like, I do typically like Ian, but not in this one. Like I say, I mean, like, I don't know if he's trying to go meta on us and trying to sell the red herring or what. But like, yeah, I don't, 
I, I didn't I didn't particularly like what he was doing, but no, Barbara's definitely the best in this one. So where does this fall in your ranking of episodes? Like, uh, I've never ranked them on a list, but I was going to give this one as far as a rating. I was going to give it a seven out of ten. I could see that. That's probably where I'd go about too. I yeah. Mean, it's all about Barbara. She she carries this one off for me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, like, the plot is not the best. And, and even knowing that, okay, the TARDIS is trying to warn them, there are some things I'm still not clear. Like, why was it opening the doors and closing them? <laughs> you know, I still don't get why that was. The, the part about the console makes sense. Like, hey, this is the part you need to focus on. So five sides are dangerous. One side isn't. Go there. It was giving them a breeze. I have no idea. All right. And the clock's melting. Okay, it's somehow related to time. They're going too far back in time. Maybe. Okay. But yeah, like, the, yeah, I'm still not. I mean, the story, I, I'm still not that clear. I, but the big thing is they're already playing with the idea that the TARDIS can think, which we think about it now. Like, when you come to Doctor Who from later Who, it's like, well, of course, we know that. We treat the, t- the TARDIS as a living thing. Right. But in the 1960s, this is far out sci-fi. Yeah. I mean, we've already discovered that thanks to the first episode, I mean, the TARDIS's like little switch or disguise thingy is broken and it's mm-hmm. now stuck like this. And now apparently it can, it can think some, at least a little bit. Yeah. I mean, and also if you want to get into the lore of the show or whatever, we learn later also that the TARDIS is telepathic. And that's how I explain a lot of the weirdness in this one is that the TARDIS is trying to tell them that something's wrong. And it's also sending them like tele- telepathic signals, but they're, they're taking they're It's just making them more paranoid because they're like feeling like the pain or the, you know, or the, the terror of the ship that it's being like forced into its own destruction. And that's making them more paranoid. You know what the TARDIS is like? It's like my poor cat who peed in my bed to tell me that something was wrong and he wasn't feeling good. Yeah, exactly. And I had to figure out that it wasn't, I had to take him to the vet and then he had to tell me again that he really wasn't feeling well and dislocated his hip for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like my cat. I can't, it, we can communicate, but it's not in words. That's actually kind of funny that you say that because when the show went off the air originally and they started doing novels, like there was one where the TARDIS represented itself as a cat. So, Oh my gosh, that's awesome. There you go. You're thinking similar Ooh. thoughts to the, the writers. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> so final thoughts. I'm glad that the show didn't end at this point because this would have been really weird and I, we wouldn't have a podcast. <laughs> I'm digging on Barbara. I think Susan is an incredible actress playing Susan totally gets into it. And I love her for that. Even if I think Susan's hysterics are a bit much sometimes. Mm. I definitely prefer her creepy, uh, creepy Japanese horror film Susan, as opposed to hysterical Susan. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to see that Ian shape up and become more. I don't know. Just, just become more. <laughs> <laughs> And I really want to see the doctor just kind of chilling out. And I hope that Ian and Barbara stick around for a little while. Yeah. So what would you give this on a, out of 10 rating? I mean, I know you gave it a seven. I, I would bump it up to at least a 7.5, if only because not only was Barbara fantastic, but Susan sold it. Mm. Like, I loved it. And the final conversation between Barbara and the doctor. For all that I'm not feeling this doctor, I do think that that was a good bit of character development right there. Yeah, no, I love that scene. I think that it's kind of touching. I like him going there. And it's like, he's embarrassed and he has a hard time apologizing. But you can tell he feels it. He just doesn't know how to say it. That's because he's been like the most intelligent dude around for the longest time. Right. Who does he have to apologize to? Right. Well, that's the thing. And that's that's actually a trait that sticks with the doctor all the way to the to the modern stuff is how conceited the doctor is. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it stays as a trait. But yeah, I think as you see him mellow, you will like him more. I, I look forward to it. Like, I can't wait. You tell me that Barbara has a couple, fa- like, as a serious Barbara episode coming up, and I cannot wait to get to this one. Yep. It's a few serials away, but yeah, there's a very big Barbara-centric one coming up. Cool. So yeah, I mean, my final thoughts are both Jacqueline Hill and William Hartnell relish this one, and they're amazing in it. It's creepy. It's atmospheric. The music. Yeah. And the music, I mean, for something that was just stock music that they had to search for, like it works really well, which is kind of cool that, you know, that wasn't made for the story that they were able to find things that worked as well as they did. 
the red herrings are are great. I mean, it's <laughs> I'm of two minds about whether it really should have been something in the ship, like you know, manipulating them or not, or whether I like the. Of course, it's the engineering problem. You, it's always the simple thing you don't think about. <laughs> But where it gets most tedious to me is when they're like, okay, kids, we have to teach you something about how springs work, you know, kind of stuff. And it's a big deal that the TARDIS can think for itself. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's that that'll be a huge thing that, that just continues to roll on throughout the series. And it's the doctor starting to mellow is the other big thing. So it's an important episode, even if it's one that kind of gets overlooked because it's kind of short and it's not, you know, there's no like crazy new aliens introduced or they don't mean any historical figures or anything like that, but it's, it's a good one. Okay, I got to ask something. Do our favorite torture beds make another appearance ever? I think they do. Woohoo! I'm pretty sure in the next season, because a lot of times in these ones, they don't show a lot in the early ones about the inside of the TARDIS. And so you don't get a whole lot, but there is one story I think they do appear in again. Okay, because I'm going to be watching for them now. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, uh, one thing I wanted to sort of add to the show is just for like, uh, you know, because people are wondering where I get a lot of this stuff besides watching the DVD extras, which I always do, is just mentioning some books or whatever that people can get if they ever want to know like more behind the scenes kind of stuff. So one that I will recommend is The Television Companion by David J. Howe. It's a book that goes through all of Classic Who. It's actually two. There's a second edition where it's, they've actually, he's actually split it into two volumes because he combined some stuff from another book that he had done. And it basically gives all the details as far as the cast list, directors, all that kind of stuff, air dates. But then it also does, this is what fan opinion was. And he sort of sources all the different fan magazines and things and all the different things that were said about the story. So it's a way of getting some behind the scenes, also getting like some analysis and all that kind of stuff. That's one that's still in print and that uh, you can check out. Very nice. Yeah. So before we go, Juliet, is there anything that you want to give a shout out to? Let's just say go listen to the 42 cast podcast because we just recorded a fantastic episode on the Mandalorian. <laughs> oh, I love that your shout out is to point people to my other show. Thank you, Juliet. Yes, was- you should also watch the four. <laughs> you should always listen to the 42 cast. <laughs> I mean, it's so sad. The only other thing I have is my ridiculous blog, which I apparently don't update nearly enough. And I mm. think I last updated with my last trip to go see Beetlejuice in New York, which obviously hasn't been for a while. <laughs> Yeah. So, no, I will totally plug that other podcast that I'm on. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. We have a lot of good ones coming up. We have that one with The Mandalorian. We've also got stuff where we're talking about Picard and some other shows that we're about to record. So, yeah, check it out. <laughs> that was a very nice voice. Check it out. <laughs> yeah. So, next time. So, this is going to be a little bit of a change up. Next time, we're going to talk about Marco Polo, which is the first one of the missing stories that we're going to do. So it is not on BritBox. Okay. So it's a seven-parter, so we're going to break it up like we did with the Daleks, because I think talking about seven episodes would get way too long. And so, yeah, I know I mentioned this to you before. The BBC has put out CDs with narration, where it's the audio Mm -hmm. from the story, because various fans recorded on their cassettes way back in the day. I guess they were real-to-real. I guess they weren't cassettes back then. But people who had real-to-real recorders recorded. So they actually have the audio for the story. Or you can do what's called a reconstruction, which is where fans have taken the pictures and photographs and things and sort of lined them up with the audio. And so it's kind of like in the old days, if you remember those records that you could put on and you had your book and you would flip the pages and the book is the record, which is kind of like that. Except that they changed the picture for you. So which one are you interested? Which way do you want to try it? I kind of want to lean toward the totally awesome, like putting the pictures with the audio. Okay. But I also defer to your who experience (laughs) and knowledge. I prefer the reconstructions just because I like seeing the pictures. And so that helps me to sort of like visualize the story. I have a friend, though, who loves the narrated audio. So, I mean, it's really whatever you want kind of thing. But I guess the real thing, though, is it's free if you do the reconstruction, whereas you have to pay for the CD. Then in that case, we're going the free route. That's right. 
So yeah, we're going to do Marco Polo episodes one through four. Spoiler, it is not about the water sport. Oh, <laughs> I was ready for it. <laughs> I know, it's disappointing. You see Marco Polo and you think that people are going to be in pools and they're going to be playing and, and that's not what it's about. I mean, come on, it's not safe for, for most of the public to go out in a pool and play together. So I just kind of wanted to get some vicarious you know, yeah. enjoyment right now. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, they didn't know that back in 1964. <laughs> they were ignorant back then. Ah, the bliss. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, Marco Polo episodes one through four next time. Yay! And so that's another episode of Time Streams wrapped up. Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. You've been listening to Time Streams, a subsidiary of the 42Cast podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, email us at everything at 42cast.com. Beginning music is Vortex, followed by Pulse Rock, both by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License. Ending music is Voltaic, also by Kevin McLeod and licensed by a Creative Commons Attribution License.